Well, good morning. It's great to be back. Um, it's been four months since I've been here, four months to the day, and the last time I was here, we had a full service of people, three services, and that was the last weekend that we had normality. So we're hoping that uh, comes to pass soon again. I miss seeing all of you and talking with you. Um, <clears throat> Pastor Drew has been on vacation. He's back now. And so I would like to thank Pastor Drew for loaning me his pulpit this morning. And uh, we have a lot to cover this morning, so let's jump in. If you would open your Bible, please, to Luke chapter 4. In our ongoing study of the Gospel of Luke, after four months, we finally arrive at the point where Luke has been preparing this for. It's now been 30 years since Gabriel came with his announcement of the coming Messiah. And what we're going to see this morning is where and how Jesus began his ministry back in his hometown as he lays down his mandate for his ministry. And for you that haven't been uh, with us, let's do a quick review of where we are in Luke's gospel. Through the first 30 years of Jesus' life, he has lived in obscurity in the town of Nazareth. And the only recorded incident was his visit to Jerusalem and his dialogue with the teachers in the temple when he was 12 years old. And then the next time his appearance was at the Jordan River when he was baptized by John the Baptist. After his baptism, Jesus, by the direction of the Holy Spirit, spent 40 days in the wilderness being tempted by Satan, showing that he could conquer sin and death and was victorious over the enemy. And as Dave Briggs taught us that last time, that was last week, so finally, we get past all the preliminaries. And remember, everything up to now has been leading us to spell out the credentials of the Messiah. Luke has given us a long list of witnesses to testify of who Jesus is. Whether it's the word of Gabriel or the testimony of Zechariah, Elizabeth, John, Mary or Joseph, Simeon, Anna, or his genealogy, or his conflict with Satan, or the testimony of the Father in heaven, or the descent of the Holy Spirit. All that has gone before is to prove that the Messiah is the Son of God, the Savior of the world, and the promised Messiah. So this scene takes place in his hometown of Nazareth, and we're going to divide our text this morning into three sections, the setting, the message, and then the reaction. Now we come to verses 14 and 15, and what these verses describe for us is his Galilean ministry. 
Verse 14, And Jesus returned to Galilee in the power of the Spirit, and news about him spread through all the surrounding district. And he began teaching in their synagogue and was praised by all. He returned to Galilee. Here Luke moves immediately to Jesus' ministry in the Galilee. Now, the Galilean ministry lasted about a year and a half. And starting right here in verse 14 and going all the way through to almost the end of chapter 9 is his Galilean ministry. So we are going to be in Galilee for a while. Now, Josephus tells us there was about 240 towns and villages in Galilee So for a year and a half, Jesus, with his disciples, traveled through this area. Now Luke moves right from Christ's temptation to his ministry in Galilee. Now as we consider Luke's account, Jesus is basically ministering in Galilee in a similar pattern. And that pattern is given for us right here in these two verses. In the power of the Spirit... It is teaching in the synagogue. That is essentially it. That was the nature of the substance of his ministry. He was a teacher and he was a preacher. And the place he would typically go to preach and teach was the synagogues. And what was the response? The response was that the news about him spread throughout all the surrounding District, And it was a positive reaction. It says he was praised by all. That was the initial response. Now in these two simple verses, I want us to see five things that defines the ministry of Jesus. First, we find the place of his ministry, Galilee. Then the power of his ministry, the Holy Spirit we find the popularity of his ministry spreading throughout all the surrounding district. And then we find the priority of his ministry teaching in the synagogues. And then we find the praise of his ministry as the people responded to him. Now in verse 14 it says, Jesus returned to Galilee. Now as we read this, it appears obviously that the Galilean ministry begins immediately after the temptation because that's the way it flows here in our text. Look at verse 13. When the devil had finished every temptation, he left him until an opportune time. And Jesus returned to Galilee. Verse 14. But you learn something when you study the four Gospels and they combine to give us a full picture Luke, by design of the Holy Spirit, jumps immediately from the temptation to the Galilean ministry. That's what Luke did. But there's a gap between verses 13 and 14. In fact, Jesus had a ministry close to a year before he ever began this Galilean ministry. And we want to understand that. So while Luke jumps from the temptation to Galilee, there's much that's happened in between. And you say... Well, where do we find out about that? The answer is the Gospel of John, the first four verses, records it for us. 
And to know what happened during that year is really important to understanding the foundation of Jesus' ministry and the response to, of his ministry from the people. What Jesus did in that year really establishes his patterns and it's critical to our knowledge of Jesus and his ministry. I would love to take you through the first four chapters of John. And I hear some of you laughing. I couldn't even get through the first four verses. But let's see if we could quickly summarize the first four chapters of John. So please turn with me to John chapter 1. Now, one thing you'll notice here is the attributes that we're going to see of the man Jesus are identical to God's. All right, you got your seatbelt strapped on? Let's go. John chapter 1. John has given testimony to Jesus, the Son of God, while Jesus is now beginning his ministry in Judea. Now down in verse 36, John the Baptist was declaring him as the Lamb of God. In verse 37, two disciples of John heard him speak, and they followed Jesus. So through the end of this chapter, Jesus now is beginning to gather his disciples. And these in these chapters of John, John focuses on Jesus Christ in very clear ways. And this is what I want us to see because it's foundational to his ministry. In verse 42 of chapter 1, Jesus looked at Simon and said, You are Simon. Not only are you Simon, but you're the son of John. Well, how did he know that? He knew that because he knows everything. Nathaniel said to him in verse 48, how do you know me? Jesus said to him, Before Philip called you, when you were under the fig tree, I saw you. Wait a minute. How does he know all of this? He knows this because he has infinite knowledge. Because his omniscience. He is God. Secondly, we see transcendence. Jesus was human, but he wasn't just human, as shown in verse 51. And he said to him, truly, truly I say to you, you shall see the heavens open and the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. His point is this, I'm going to give you access to heaven. I am the mediator, he's telling him, between God and man. Jesus' divine transcendence provides access to heaven for those that believe in him. Thirdly, omnipotent. John wants us to know about the power that Jesus has, is the power of God. So in chapter 2 now, the first 12 verses, the first 12 verses, he tells the story of a wedding. And in this wedding is where Jesus does his first miracle. Now Cana is a little village just outside of Nazareth that you can easily walk there. So the family of Jesus were invited as guests, and so were Jesus and his disciples. So at the wedding, the wine gave out, which is not good. It was very embarrassing for the family and the host. So the mother of Jesus said to him, they have no wine. She doesn't go just beyond, beyond that. She just says they have no wine. So she brings 
the problem to his attention. Now, one could speculate that he was the greatest problem solver any mother had in her house. Verse 5, she says to the servants, whatever he says to you, do it. I think that's great advice. Verse 7, Jesus said to them, fill the water pots with water. And they filled them up to the brim. And he said, draw some out and take it to the head waiter. And they took it to him. And when the head waiter tasted the water, it had become wine. Notice, there's no drama. There's no fanfare. Jesus just created wine. He created wine without a vine, without a grape, without ground, without the sun. He just created wine. That's his omnipotence at a basic level. The power to create something out of nothing. John tells us his story because at the heart and soul, it is at the heart of soul of the character of Jesus. And then we come to chapter in chapter 2, we come to verse 12. Now he's heading south down to Jerusalem. And what is the first thing that he does when he arrives at Jerusalem? He steps right into the temple where they're selling the sheep and the oxen. And he turns the place upside down. He drives out the money changers and he calls the place a den of thieves. Here is holy indignation. The Lord of love, yes. The Lord of grace, the Lord of holiness, yes but not until he has broken the pride of sin and irreverence. And here John introduces the attribute of holiness. In verse 16, Jesus makes an unmistakable claim to deity. My Father's house. This would have rattled their cages like you can't imagine. Nobody has ever made that claim. They had never heard anyone make the claim, my father, in a personal expression like that. In verse 18, the Jews said to him, what sign do you show us seeing that you do these things? In other words, who do you think you are? Jesus answered and said to them, destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. There's the next attribute, eternality. He says, I am eternal. I cannot ultimately die. I will conquer death. Then in chapter 3, the first 10 verses, Jesus has a conversation with a man named Nicodemus. And in that chapter, we learn about regeneration and what it means to be born again. So John gives us the message of Jesus, and the message is simply this. Nicodemus, you are the teacher in Israel. You know more than anybody else. You're the Pharisee of Pharisees. You know all the laws of God. You've got it all sorted out. Now, Nicodemus might have expected Jesus to say, you know, Nicodemus, you're so far down the line. All you need to add is this little deal, and, and you'll be there, my friend. But what did Jesus say? Jesus said, you know what you need to do, Nicodemus? You need to forget everything you know, all of it, completely. You need to throw out all the works righteousness system. You need to go all the way back to the beginning and be born all over again because it's all useless. 
What a blow to Nicodemus. His entire life was dedicated to religion. You need a new heart, Nicodemus. You need to have that stony heart taken out, the heart of flesh put in, and the Spirit of God poured in you. And then from verses 11 to 21, he talks about salvation, that God so loved the world that he sent his Son to be the Savior. He talked about regeneration and the inability for religion to save. Now that you know the need, how do you appropriate that salvation? Well, the theme of those verses, 11 through 21, is to believe, believe, believe. And then you can see the same thing further down in chapter, the end of the chapter, verse 36. It says, He who believes in the Son has eternal life. He who does not obey the Son will not see life, but the wrath of God abides on him. That pretty much sums it up. You're either a saint or you ain't. So John, in this early portrait of Jesus, gives us the man and the message, and he also, in chapter 4, gives us the mission of Jesus. The mission of Jesus to reach the world, because this is a story about Jesus bringing the gospel to a woman. What kind of a woman? A Samaritan woman. It had how many husbands? Five, and she was working on number six. This is a classic outcast. But she believes she is saved, and then she becomes a witness to all the people in the town. So this is really the key to understanding the mission and the purpose of Jesus' ministry. Chapter 4, verse 39. And from that city, many of the Samaritans believed in him, because of the word of the woman who testified. So now we've got a whole bunch of Samaritans being converted here. And Jesus stays there two more days. And it says many more believed because of his word. So he stayed there and he preached. Verse 45. When he came to Galilee, the Galileans received him. Now listen to this. Having seen all the things he did in Jerusalem at the feast... For they themselves also went to the feast. 46. He came therefore again to Cana of Galilee where he had made the water wine. So this is where he begins to launch his Galilean ministry. Now the reason I wanted to take you through all of that is because now we understand why it says his fame spread abroad. So let's go back to Luke chapter 4. And now we understand a little more of what was behind the simple statements here in verses 14 and 15. <clears throat> and Jesus returned to Galilee in the power of the Spirit, and news about him spread through all the surrounding district. And he began teaching in their synagogues and was praised by all. The word had spread all over because when Passover happened, many of them were down in Jerusalem. So the word is spreading everywhere. And that word news can be translated fame. His fame was starting to go everywhere. And his priority was to teach. The priority for Jesus was teaching God's word. 
Long ago, somebody said God only had one son, and he was a preacher, and that's correct. His primary responsibility was to preach and teach the word of God. As we will see here as the story unfolds. Verse 16. We're making great progress. He came to Nazareth where he had been brought up. And as was his custom, he entered the synagogue on the Sabbath and he stood to read. Now, if you'll notice the place he was teaching, in the synagogues. He had ready-made venues. This was a perfect place for Jesus to teach. Because every town and village had synagogues. Now the word synagogue means a gathering place. And these were places that grew up after the Babylonian captivity where the Jews assembled. They were called houses of instruction. The purpose was to go there and hear the word of God explained. Um, The synagogues are very similar to what we have church. Their services are very similar. So, for instance, in the 18th chapter of John, Jesus says, I have spoken openly to the world. I have always taught in synagogues and in the temple where the Jews come together. So now the question is, why does Luke start with this? Of all of the things he could have chosen, he didn't have to pick this first event here in Nazareth. He could have picked something else. I mean, Jesus had preached lots of sermons. Why did the Spirit of God instruct Luke to start with this? Why is this the launch point for Luke's discussion for the ministry of Jesus? The answer is very simple, because what Jesus said on this occasion identifies him as the Messiah and perfectly defines his ministry. What he said that day in the Nazareth synagogue when he launched his ministry is a perfect summary of the Messiah's mission. So it makes perfect sense for Luke to pick this incident because it really describes who Jesus was and what his message was, as Luke will continue to show us that Jesus is the Messiah. This becomes critical, and Luke wanted to make it first because it establishes who Jesus is, why he came in absolute powerful terms. Now Jesus had done no miracles in Nazareth. He had not taught in Nazareth. He hadn't told anybody he was the Messiah or the Son of God. But they must have wondered. It was a small town and his uniqueness and his perfection must have caused them to wonder. So now he's back, and the word is traveling into Galilee from what he had done down at the wedding supper in in Cana, which is only five miles from Nazareth. So they heard about the cleansing of the temple because it happened at Passover, and they must have heard about other miracles and other teachings. And you can be sure on that day in that synagogue, it was packed out. Hometown boy makes good, right? So let's take a look at Jesus' sermon, verses 16 through 20. (coughs) 
as was his custom, he entered the synagogue on the Sabbath. This time, however, something was different. For the first time, it was Jesus who stood up to read. Verse 17. And the book of the prophet Isaiah was handed to him, and he opened the book and found the place where it was written. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he has anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim release to the captives and recover the sight to the blind, to set free those who are oppressed, to proclaim the favorable year of the Lord. And he closed the book, gave it back to the attendant, and sat down, and the eyes of all in the synagogue were fixed on him. So he's the reader on this occasion. He's the reader and the expositor of the prophets. So let's set the scene here. I don't know if any of you are familiar with the writings of Alfred Edersheim. He wrote a classic work called The Life and Times of Jesus. And he really captures the drama of the moment. And he writes, Starting on Friday, as the lengthening shadows of Friday's sun closed around a quiet valley, Jesus would hear the well-remembered double blast of the trumpet from the roof of the synagogue. Proclaiming the advent of the Holy Sabbath, once more it sounded through the still summer air to tell that work, all work must be laid aside. Yet a third time it was heard, and the one who blew it would lay it down right where he stood and not profane the Sabbath by carrying it. For now the Sabbath had really commenced, and the festive Sabbath lamp was lit. In the morning, Sabbath morning dawned, and early Jesus went to the synagogue, where as a child and as a youth and as a man he had so often worshipped in the humble retirement of his rank, sitting not up there with the elders and the honored, but far back. The old, well-known faces were around him. The old, well-remembered words and services fell on his ears. How different they had always been to him than to the people with whom he had mingled in common worship. And now he was again among them, a stranger among his own countrymen. This time to be looked at, listened to, tested, tried, used, or cast aside as the case might be. Now this was the first time, as far as we know, that Jesus taught in a synagogue. And the synagogue was his own in Nazareth. The book of the prophet Isaiah was handed to him and he opened the book and found the place where it was written. And the place where he wanted to read is Isaiah 61, verses 1 and 2. And he reads them in verses 18 and 19. And I just want to, as a footnote, just mention something here because it's important. The Christian gospel is not a disconnect from the Old Testament. It's not another religion. In fact, Christianity is the fulfillment of the Old Testament, right? When Jesus wanted to identify himself, he read from the Old Testament. Remember Luke chapter 24, verse 27? 
After his resurrection, Jesus is on the road to Emmaus, and he's talking to his disciples. It says, And beginning with Moses, which is the first books of the Bible, and all the prophets, which are the last books of the Old Testament, Moses and all the prophets, he explained to them the things concerning himself in the scriptures. Okay, verses 18 and 19. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim the release to the captives, recover the sight to the blind, set free those who are oppressed, to proclaim the favorable year of the Lord. He reads that scripture. Now they knew it was messianic. They know they're hearing prophecy. They knew that. And they know the prophecy of Isaiah is mainly about the Messiah. And they knew that when the Messiah come, they've been taught it their whole life, when the Messiah comes, he would be anointed by the Spirit. Anointed means to be set apart, empowered for special service. If you remember back in chapter 3, Luke makes a very clear point when he was baptized that the Holy Spirit descended upon him. So Jesus is the fulfillment of the prophecy, the Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me. The Holy Spirit came upon him to enable him to do his ministry with divine power. Then in verse 18, we see four concise components to the Messiah's ministry. And folks, this is why Luke picked this, because you can't have a better summary of the mission of the Messiah than that. Four groups are identified here. The poor, prisoners, the blind, oppressed, and the Messiah is coming to change those conditions. And that speaks of his saving work. And then verse 19 sums it up. To proclaim the favorable year of the Lord. What is that? That's the year the Lord brings favor, right? It's the year the Messiah arrives. The favorable year of the Lord is the time of the Messiah's arrival. And in Isaiah 49, it's also called the year of salvation. So what he's saying is salvation has come. The age of salvation you've long awaited for has arrived. This is the year when the Lord shows his favor by providing you the Savior, the sacrifice for sin. Now they were staring at salvation. And before the day's over, they would reject his message and try to kill him. Amazing. Amazing. But you know, 2,000 years later, nothing has changed. The same gospel message is rejected. And you've all heard, I'm sure, people say, someday, someday I'll make my peace with God. I'll get around to it. And that reminds me of Proverbs 1, paraphrased. Wisdom shouts in the streets. She lifts her voice. You better listen. You better turn. You better repent. And Paul warned the Corinthians, Behold, now is the acceptable time. Behold, now is the day of salvation. 
Today is the day when God will listen to repentant sinners and when God will help. But it's not always so. We have no guarantee of tomorrow. Paul says, this is the time. And people, today we have the same situation. This is the hour and this is the time. Jesus understood it. Did he ever? He understood that there would be a time of salvation and it would be offered, but there will be an end to that time. Jesus said, work while it is day, for the night comes when no man can work. It's now, this is the time, and that's why Paul was so passionate. And amazingly, by the way, in verse 19, where Jesus reads from Isaiah 61, 2, to proclaim the favorable year of the Lord, he stops right if you read that out of Isaiah, he stops right in the middle of a sentence at a comma. The rest of verse 2 in Isaiah says, and the day of vengeance of our God, Jesus leaves that out. Why? Because it's not time for vengeance. It's time for salvation. That's what it, It's time to talk about salvation. It's not time for judgment. And that comma has lasted for 2,000 years. And when Jesus comes back, to remove his church from the earth, he's going to remove that comma also. After he read that, he closed the book, sat down, verse 20, and all the eyes of the synagogue were upon him. What is he going to say? This is the time now for the explanation. This is the time for the sermon. And verse 21, he began to say to them, Today, this scripture has been fulfilled in your ears. Whoa. Nobody ever said anything like that. No preacher had ever said that. They always said someday, not today. Throughout the Old Testament, the Messiah is presented as the one who will come to bring the kingdom, forgiveness, be, become the Messiah would become the substitute, the sacrifice, the true Lamb of God that will take away the sin of the world. And all the Jews knew that, and they were waiting and waiting for centuries for the Messiah to come. People were crammed in there. Just imagine that scene that it was. And Jesus says, Everything you've been waiting for is here. Everything you've been hoping for stands before you. Today, right here, right now, this scripture has been fulfilled. And you're seeing the fulfillment of the passage before your eyes. 700 years, Isaiah had wrote that. And they've been waiting. And now, here it is, right in front of them. The prophecy of Isaiah is no more in the future. It is now. The Messiah is here. Salvation has come. He was saying, I am the Messiah. Let's try to imagine something, if you can. Try to imagine coming to church, coming in here, and expecting to see Pastor Drew here preaching. But instead, having the Lord Jesus appear here. And he's here, and he's telling us that he's coming to fulfill all the prophecies of his second coming. All the prophecies of the glory of his kingdom, salvation. Imagine you had come to church and Jesus was standing in the pulpit 
to tell you that now is the time to fulfill all his prophecies and it's going to begin by him taking us in the rapture to the glories and the place that he's prepared for us. Well, that is something like what the Jews were experiencing that day in that synagogue in Nazareth. Now you say, well, that's kind of a short sermon, verse 21. But I don't think it was that short because it says, and he began to say to them. And he began indicates that it was just a summary of a much more detailed explanation. But the sum of it was today. This is no longer future. It is present. They had had a lot of sermons about, this, about the Messiah. Now they had one from him. They had had a lot of sermons about the age to come. Now they were in it. Dramatic. So question. What did Isaiah mean when he wrote 61, chapter 61? And what did Jesus mean when he read those four statements? Preaching the gospel to the poor. Proclaiming the release to the captives. Recovering the sight to the blind. And setting free those who are oppressed. Who are the poor, the captives, the blind, and the oppressed? And what does he offer them? Well, we're going to have to come back next week to hear Jesus explain his sermon. Would you pray with me? Father, we thank you this morning that we can relive history, the most wonderful history of all, the story, the reality of, of our Lord. Thank you for what you taught us today, Lord, about Jesus and his mission, Lord. We thank, that you, thank you, Lord, that we have caused us to know him and love him. And, Lord, that he's not a stranger to us and he's not unreachable. Jesus stepped into this town, back to his own hometown, and announced salvation. Preaching the good news, Lord, we thank you that he is ours and he lives in us and he loves us. He gave his life for us and someday... He will take us to glory and to be with him forever. Father, we ask that you would increase our love for this Savior and our devotion to him. We pray in his name. Amen.